This is John. And this is Trav. And there is no Blix. Blix is not with us. He's on the road. So we're going to soldier forward with our three main hosts. Tonight we are going to speak about Bureau 13. We put up on our Facebook page not too long ago the question of what would be what you considered your basic loadout for your Bureau 13 character. We got some responses and they were pretty good. So we thought we'd talk about it, you know, from what we've seen and what we also personally believe. Every agent is going to have a different idea of what that is, and of course the Bureau has its own idea. Still, there are some reasons to think about it ahead of time. What Nick Pallotta put in his books was that it's really important to be able to share ammo between weapons, because you never know when you're going to need every bullet you got. Because you're a Bureau agent, you can carry a lot more stuff, though. With the 13th pocket, and for those who are not familiar with the 13th pocket, uh, it's a basically a bag of holding that you can have attached to any backpack, briefcase, shoulder bag, whatever. And you can put about 50 pounds worth of stuff in there. So yeah, your loadout is a bit more than, than the average person would normally carry. And whatever is in that 13th pocket is totally undetectable by anything, airport scanners, security scanners, and federal building, whatever. And it is keyed to the person who owns the bag. So if it's your bag, you are the only person that can access that 13th pocket. Right, but it right. is totally identifiable to anybody who can detect magic. Well, yeah. That's important because all these magical devices that you carry is a big radar sign that you are you know, something other than normal. Yeah, you're a big beacon to any supernatural creature or mage or acolyte who can pick up on that yes i guess we should start at the beginning most bureau 13 adventures start in urban areas because that's where the concentration of people are and that's where when something supernatural kicks off you're going to have a real deadline on getting that mission finished that supernatural thing eliminated or suppressed because we don't want the supernatural to become public. No, uh, no, no. I think we should talk about urban loadouts first. Trav, what's your idea of the, the best urban loadout? Is this per agent or per team? Let's talk about agents first, and then we'll talk about the shared items for teams. Okay, let's see. A personal sidearm, and that would be per choice. There might be just everybody likes a certain type of gun, and in the years training you get in the banger facility... You're going to learn what gun you just seem to work with best. So I would say your personal firearm. Is going to be a factor whether or not you want to make it hideable or not? Let's face it, in modern-day America, walking around with a firearm, even if you are legally licensed to carry in that state, you're still walking around with a firearm. So you're going to need a concealed shoulder holster, and like under a jacket. I would probably say two clips of ammo on you. One in the gun and one extra. Because if you're going to be needing any more than that, you've pretty much given up any concept of stealth. Your Bureau PDA, your wrist PDA, shades, which can be hooked up via wire to the PDA, and you can just run that like the inside of your uh, jacket sleeve. It'll look like you have an earpiece on it the most, maybe. Some type of communications device. Now, in the Bureau 13D20, they still have the comm implant, which is fitted behind the ear. And I think it's embedded just below the skin. It's bone conduction, so it's actually attached to the skull. Okay. Ooh. There's not a whole lot of anything between the skin and the skull at that location. Okay. Yeah. So All it's right. really so pretty it's much the same thing. Same. I would still say some type of regular communication, you know, cell phone, smartphone, whatever. But obviously you can tap into your bureau stuff with that. Maybe some type of light armor. Now, we were talking about this before we came on the air. In D20, heck, a leather jacket gives you minimal armor protection. Gives you one I think point. It's, 
yeah, one point. But still, you know, if 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 you're getting hit with a two d six bullet, it's going to take a little bit of the edge off at most. You're still going to get, <laughs> yeah, very little. <laughs> John, yeah, nice laugh. Very little. John brought up the idea of a bulletproof T-shirt. Now, John, could you explain that really quick? Oh yeah, this is this is one of these bureau high tech things they have come up with, either from interactions with aliens or alien technology they found. It's it looks like a cotton T-shirt. But it's interwoven with smart carbon nanotube fibers, so that when the bullet touches the outside of the T-shirt, the fibers in that area snap together, forming a plate. Basically, stop the bullet from penetrating, or at least reducing its penetration at that point. I would probably think for uh, D20 parlance, maybe two to three points of armor protection at best. Yeah, Th- thicker stuff. If you're wearing like a sweater, a sweater made of this stuff would probably be equivalent of wearing a heavy flak jacket. You know, if you have a nice thick sweater that's like a quarter inch thick, that would definitely be, be much more protection than a, a light t-shirt. Oh, of course, they'd probably make it look like the black sweaters like the SEALs wear and just that paramilitary look. John, is this documented anywhere? Or? No, I was thinking I just pulled out of where you pull stuff out of. Yeah. Okay, so this is in your own personal campaign. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. The variations were earlier on before nanotubes. It was magic. It was a it was a magic T-shirt you wore that basically gave you light bulletproof protection. It's going to be where that bullet may not penetrate the skin. You're still going to hurt like hell, but it's not going to penetrate the skin. As I said, very in D20 parlance, at the most, one to three points of armor bonus. In my campaign, I use armor as damage reduction because I still believe armor does not make you harder to hit. It makes you harder to be damaged. <laughs> Therefore, one to three points of damage reduction. In D20, I actually kind of like the idea that it makes you harder to hit. You know, because <laughs> it, it does change the odds. Three points is what? 15 percentage points difference of being hit or not hit? It's important. Yeah, I, that, that's a matter of personal preference as far as that yeah. Anyways, let's see. What else would a, a bureau agent have? Let's see. Personal firearm loaded with one extra clip, some form of armor protection, bureau PDA and shades, some type of smart phone, some type of self device in order to communicate even normally. Maybe that 13th pocket, a briefcase or backpack or something. And it would just depend. Depend on the outlook of the character. If you are generally a guy who wears suits on missions, you're going to have a briefcase. If you're going to be somebody who dresses like me, usually T-shirt and jeans, a backpack. Either way, you have that 13th pocket in there, and then you can carry all the other stuff that you might need, depending on how your character rolls on missions. We always have this saying, is a bureau agent really off the clock? They're always going to want to be prepared. For the bureau agent prestige class, they get a plus two to initiative because they're always alert. One thing I changed out of that list is drop the PDA. It's already out of date. Your smartphone is what you're going to be using instead of a PDA. It's, it's already happened. It's really a convergence. Yeah. I have my BlackBerry 8530 curve right here. And yeah, I mean, the thing is maybe four inches long by maybe two inches wide. It fits in my right front pocket in my jeans. I have a Samsung top pay-as-you-go phone that basically is a smartphone. Cost you 50 bucks. Smartphones are really out there and they're all different designs. I always call them the iPhone 5s. We're not trying to hawk or advertise phones here. We're just describing what we have here, folks, just for sake of example. I have to agree with John on this. The Bureau PDA, the wrist PDA, is already a bit archaic looking. And that's the one bad thing about technology is that in a role playing game, you look at something that was even made five years ago and you're like, God, they still have that in here, and it's like, well, we didn't have, smartphones weren't as prevalent as they are now, therefore, the GM would have to say, okay, all bureau agents get a smartphone. Some type of thing, combination phone, calendar, PDA, text, camera in it, because you're going to want the camera. I mean, obviously, you're going to have to take pictures in order, you know, for a case. The technology is caught up with bureau technology. There's a lot of ex-bureau agents out there running these companies. Yeah. And they've, they've managed to filter the technology that they've gotten into the civilian sector. Well, the military sector first, then the civilian sector. And I wouldn't call myself a dove, but I'm not condoning war. War is an ugly thing. But wartime is often the greatest uh, time of technological advancements. 
And within, I think, what, five to ten years it was the going rate, it might have picked up a little. Within five to ten years, military technology, when it's first tried out in the field, trickles down some, in some way down to the civilian sector. The Bureau buys things like tablets and smartphones and upgrades them. It's still the same phone. I mean, still, you know, it's, a, it's the same tablet, same laptop, but it's been upgraded with Bureau add-ons. Like, I guess you always get bars. No matter where you are, you always get bars on your smartphone. It doesn't matter where you are. You can be inside the biggest skyscraper in the basement. You still got bars. <laughs> Again, D20 parlance. It's what I'm familiar with. If you've got a late PL5 cell phone with PL7 technology inside, heaven knows what that phone's going to do. There are going to be people looking at you going, how did you do that? You have a Crackberry. <laughs> <laughs> you have an iBanana. You just tell them that you jailbroke it. Yeah. Also remember, a, a prime source of high technology for the Bureau is Fringeworthy. Fringeworthy yes, and the Bureau are working together, which means that the timeline that we've set up, Fringeworthy is actually 20 years advanced in yeah. the timeline. I mean, it's 2013 now in the Bureau timeline, I believe. So that's 2033. Right. That's already right. the beginning of the middle campaign for, or the right. beginning of the late Which means campaign. that not only has the normal advancement of technology you would expect happen, but there's also all the technology they've harvested from even higher tech worlds. I tell people, I says, well, no, you don't have the best of the best. You just have what's normal in 2033, and they're keeping the best of the best for themselves. So if you're playing a fringeworthy agent with a, a Bureau 13 team, you can still wow them. Oh, yeah. The Bureau has encountered aliens, either uh, unfriendly, friendly and in unfriendly, and, you know, crashes here and there. Time travelers, and the Bureau has access to all sorts of avenues to get high technology. I rate the Bureau, due to all these various technological influences, D20 system, I would say easily PL7, which means PL8 would be cutting edge. PLA would be those things that Ray sends you without instruction manuals. For those of you unfamiliar, Professor Ray Robertson, the the almighty godhead of Bureau Tech R&D. And his daughter. Oh, I wasn't aware he had a daughter. Oh, okay. Yeah. He needs a daughter because, unfortunately, Ray has not yet found a rejuvenation Ray. So, yeah, he's, his daughter is, is stepping into his footsteps. <laughs> I learn something new every week on this podcast, folks. I've been with TriTech for 10 years. I was not aware that Professor Ray Robertson had a daughter. You haven't heard the best part of it yet about it. He has a daughter. Yes. Ray's never been married. Okay. So it's either illegitimate daughter or... She looks just like Ray, except, you know, like someone switched in a chromosome or two. Ah, Okay. <laughs> It's also possible that she's his daughter from an alternate dimension where Ray wasn't too busy building equipment for Bureau 13. Yeah. Yeah. Only Ray knows. Uh, hey, it's like we say about Bureau 13, all stories are true. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Anyways, about the technology that Bureau 13 agents have access to. As we said, PL7, which is, I believe, the gravity age. So, I mean, you have, like, micronized technology to the max. I mean, there's stuff that would be mm -hmm. probably the size of a briefcase is now the size of a golf ball, you know, and it still does the same functions and possibly more. Players can go nuts, and I mean, of course, depending on the game system you have, there's all sorts of resources for, you know, what you can put in your smartphone. I believe in Bureau 13D20, there is a chart for how quickly and how about you get, let's say you, you call in and you say, okay, we need this, this, and this. And there is a chart telling you how fast you'll get it and by what method. That's for equipment drops. Yeah, yeah, yeah thank you. If you're in a city or if you're near a regional team, it'd be a lot quicker than if you're out in the middle of a Nevada desert looking at a giant anthill. Yeah. Location matters. If you're by a regional team near their supply dump or their supply warehouse, yeah, they may have stuff on hand already you can get from them. Sometimes if it's really that special, yeah, they got delivery systems that will deliver to you. Just don't stand anywhere near Epicenter when it shows up. If you roll a 100 on the delivery chart, I believe Transmat drop and it instantly appears there in front of you, yeah. There's two different types of requisitioning. 
there's the initial requisition you do when you get your message from the Bureau saying, here's your mission. The first thing that any agent should do is immediately put in any special equipment that they think that they need. That may or may not be delivered by the time you get to your mission location. Then there's the second one, which is what happens when you're actually in the field, and then you start requesting equipment. A lot of times there's a lot of dead time between you getting the mission and actually being able to get into the field because of air flights and things like that. So it may not seem like the first initial one takes as long because of that. So it's always a good idea to really try to ask for the moon first and then go after the stuff that actually makes the most sense when you're actually out there in the field. Not all missions come from the Bureau. Sometimes they are self-generated. If you're like a regional team, you're surveying and watching the local news feeds, you know, looking at blogs. You may even set up a few blogs or a few forums for people to post stuff. And then let Bureau filters go through the stuff and, and filter out the fakes from the reels. Sometimes you're busy out there looking for, looking for trouble. Yeah, see, folks. I am a tech tart. I just enough technology to help on this podcast and do my own show. That's it. It's a really good idea for both Game Master and players to have a grasp on modern technology and the ability to extrapolate. Okay, if we can do this now, how could the Bureau make this better, faster, stronger, quicker? And just like John said, he brought up smartphones. I was still stuck on the idea of the PDA. It never occurred to me that a smartphone could probably do all the stuff that the Bureau PDA in, in the D20 edition could probably do now and better. You look at the PDA, okay, and it lists all kinds of stuff it can do. And then you look at the phone, and it doesn't do anything except be a phone and explode. So already there's yeah. a reason to have convergence. Yeah. Most of the yeah. stuff that you'd want in a phone is actually in the Bureau Watch. Well, why am I reminded of the line in Spy Kids where it does all these 5,000 different things? And the kid goes, does it tell time? And the scientist looks and goes, that was the one thing we couldn't fit in the watch. Yeah. <laughs> right. For me, I always say you've got the watch and then you've got a BlackBerry or PDA. First of all, the watch has your phone functions, but you also can link to your, your watch that way. It has all your computer lookups. It has all of your computational hacking abilities, and it also has the Carillion detector built into it. Since I live in Seattle, one thing you don't see, except from people over 50, are watches on people's arms. No one wears watches these days because they have, happen to have these wonderful pocket watches called cell phones. Yeah, I know. My BlackBerry 85 free. I Yeah, 10.25 p.m. right now, it says here on time, date, and just, yeah, so... I haven't worn a watch in five years because I've had a cell phone on. Yeah, well, actually, John, that's not true because watches for sport enthusiasts are still just as important as ever. Yeah. Yep, that's true. All those things are combination altimeters, uh, GPSs, uh, heart monitors, timers, and everything else. <laughs> But when they're not doing those activities, I bet those watches come off and go into the bag and they don't get, get put on to the, doing the activity again. Well, that may be. And they also can have, let us say, jewelry purposes. That's true, too. I mean, yeah. The $1,000 watch does still have its place in, in fashion. So, Of course, if you put a $1,000 watch on your wrist, someone's probably going to try to steal it, even if you're a bureau agent. That would be interesting. That would be funny to see. And let's say you're, like, genetically enhanced, you get tweaked by the Bureau, and somebody tries to steal your watch, and you just grab their wrist, and it's like, excuse me, what? And the person's there, oh, God, let go! And it's like, no, the watch is mine. Get out of here. Yeah. yeah. But the reason I bring, the, bring up the fact that there's no watches, my last trip to the grocery store, I realized there were no, none of these cheap watches you used to have five, six years ago for kids. They're gone. They don't make them anymore. At least around here, they don't sell because kids have cell phones. But there's another reason, John, to have two different devices like this. One is duplication of function, okay, because one right. can be lost. Yep. And second thing is because if you're trying to juggle 20 functions on your iPod or computer pad, it's hard to do that. It's really nice to be able to have some functions on another device. When I'm at work, I have like the help desk screen up on one screen. I have my programming environment up on the other. There's a good reason to separate things out so you have two hands operating two different things. 
Oh yeah, and I agree. Also, if you if you have to go someplace and they say leave your cell phone here, you still got something because people normally don't think about cell phones, watch cell phones. Right. That's another good reason to have a watch. Yeah. But understand, if you're playing young twenty somethings, chances are you're not wearing a watch. One of the things with what you pick for your bureau agent's equipment, it depends on the yeah. mindset of the character. If you are some 50-year-old guy who's been a cop for 25 years, he's not used to certain things. Even after the year training and seeing all this high technology, he's going to go with what he knows works, what he's comfortable with. He's going to have a watch. That's just how he's been raised. He may have a polycarbonate-type gun that shoots these type of bullets, but he's probably going to have it look like a gun that he had while on the force. It's the mindset of the character. Now, the young 20-something, they're going to be the ones that are gadget-laden. They're going to be ones that have their Crackberry and their iPhone and all this, that, and the other. I'm me, 42, and I'm sounding like, oh, these kids today. Um, They're going to have all those gadgets up because they were raised on it. My daughter knows more about computers than I do. One person pointed out, oh, yes, we also have the Bureau cigarette lighter, which has proven to be invaluable to solving many problems and also blowing things up. Cigarette lighters are fine. Cigarettes, eh, but cigarette lighters, yeah. Yeah, in the Bureau game, I believe we phased out the cigarette pack just because so few places you can smoke publicly anymore. And so we just phased it out of the equipment list. It's still in the D20 version, but even back in the Outpost game supplements, we had J.P. Withers sending a note to Ray saying, you've got to remove this device. It's totally non-covert. It doesn't fool anybody. It just makes you somebody who's going to get caught. So he recommended using a small bag that could be Velcroed to your shin or something like that that would have all these little items instead. Yeah. I think we worked out that the cigarette pack, unless there's some sort of magic hiding the weight, would weigh about a pound and a half. Yeah, which is much more than the two or three ounces it really weighs. Yeah. You have joined the most secret government agency that you have never heard of. The 13th Bureau of Justice, otherwise known as Bureau 13. You are a government agent charged with the duty of disposing of the greatest unnatural threats to the people and the, and the economy of the United States and Canada. You will work under the knowledge that you are funded by an organization so secret, even the highest government officials do not know of your existence. Welcome to the elite band of people who wander the dark streets of the night, ever searching for the horrors that should not exist in this modern age. You are a special agent, stalking the night fantastic. Year 13 is a Gen Con award-winning RPG of modern horror and paranormal adventure. It's available from Tritag Games at TritagGames.com in both the original editions and in the D20 edition, with a new Savage Worlds edition coming soon. Remember that wherever the supernatural waits, good and evil, the agents of Year 13 will be there. But the evil is growing. Okay, let's see. We've talked about weapons. We've talked about communications devices. There's a few more items that I'd like to mention. I have always been in favor of the spray pens. First of all, they're innocuous. They look like something that people would carry, and nobody ever questions them. I like to keep a combination of really powerful acid and or skunk spray. The chemical name is butyl mercaptan, yeah. Right, because that will clear a room faster than anything I know of. That spray is excellent for marking targets. If you spray that on a monster or something like that, even if it can shape change, you're still going to find it. Yeah. You just look for everybody just shying away from the pretty girl with in the stiletto heels walking okay. around the corner. This is technology that was first perfected by the Soviets in 1940. So, yes, sometimes some of the, te- the best technology is the old tried and too- true technology. And the second thing, very strong acid, because it can be used for a lot of different things. It can be used to disable electronic devices or ruin electronic devices. You can spray it on computer disks you can, you know, and ruin those if you're trying to go for evidence dispersal. You can corrode all kinds of electrical contacts. You can put a line of it on somebody's backpack or purse. Within a very short period of time, the fabric will part and it'll drop. 
you can use it to disable a lock by just corroding the inside out and then just ripping it free. Now, it's very dangerous stuff to use. There should be some kind of a check to use it properly. But overall, in the years we've been using it, it has been a godsend as far as all the utility that something like that had. I would probably say disable device would be the good way to, when you want to mess up something without just using brute force, usually disable device in D20 parlance would be your best skill for that. Problem is that's a trained skill, which means you would have to learn how to go about, okay, here's where I would apply the acid to ruin this. You could use the asset as a plus two equipment bonus, or you could say that it's a superior bonus and give it a plus four. Still, you need a rank in the skill. If Are you sure it can't be used untrained? Disabled device is a trained-only skill. If you even have just half a rank, or if you have the skill, I believe it is in Urban Arcana, jack-of-all-trades, uh, prerequisite intelligence 13, any and all skills can be used untrained as if you have half a rank. Which in that case, then, yeah, throw all the equipment bonuses and whatnot you want, and then it's like, okay, well, I have, you know, this, this spray acid and just... I'm messing with this lock. And if this was Savage Worlds, this would be a, a either a repair device, a repair roll. Be, of course, it would be the inverse of repair, but the same techniques apply. Or you could say, if you're, if you're trying to put that line onto the backpack, it would be an agility test to see if you can get that line on that backpack or that purse without burning your fingers off. Yeah, it's like the old assassin class where they're the only ones that can use poison. Anyone else tries to use poison, they get themselves poisoned, yeah. Yeah, so it's what, just like a little uh, spray can of acid? No, it's a, it's, it's a pen. Like one of those fat pens. Oh, okay, all right. It may have an ounce and a half of stuff inside. Just a one-shot type thing. You can use it a couple of times depending upon what you're doing. If you're using the skunk spray, yeah, it's gone, all right? But if you're just trying to dribble a line of molecular acid across someone's backpack strap, that shouldn't use hardly any at all. Okay, yeah. Or if you're trying to carve the initials in their chest with the S. That's also a good way, you know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but John, only you would have thought of that. You and Blix, that's the end. Bruce, we can be that way too. We're just a lot more quiet about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, I'm the one who suggested carrying it, so yeah. Yeah. Your standard loadout for your weapons, your pistols and your rifles... In your magazine, it's every other is a silver. So you got lead silver, lead silver, lead silver. Because you never know. Silver is a bane for a lot of things. But wouldn't you rather use those Creature of the Night special rounds? When you say silver, that's what you're talking about, right? Yes. The ones that are silver-coated wood with a holy symbol on one end. and Now we're bringing up the, like, and, and Eric and I were talking about this. Sunday before last, the Hellboy bullets that had, like, what, mistletoe, silver, holy water, wolf's bane, and one other thing, and they were these bullets that were almost the size of a baseball. Well, Eric brought up a good point. Wouldn't combining banes like that mess with the purity of the bane? Absolutely. Yeah, so you got to watch that. No, these are solid silver bullets. In fact, I'm thinking that maybe, depending on what they're running into, you may also consider... Wrought iron bullets. Bullets made out of iron. Like iron against Fey, yeah. Yeah. Well, there's lots of different Bane rounds you can use. But then again, Steel Jacket works against against fairies, too. So. Well, yeah. And we did do a episode on Banes. We did it back in December of last year with Rich. So, yeah, we've already covered the types of Banes that are available for Bureau agents. You never know when it comes in handy. You're also probably carrying out the standard Bane kit. It basically has the most common Banes in the kit. It's in your 13th pocket, a pump-action shotgun. I, I don't know if you'd be carrying that in the 13th pocket. I think it would be something you'd keep back in the Colorado or in your base. Well, no, I would say in the Colorado you'd carry the steamer trunk size Bane kit. We're talking the one that's basically, if you, if you, if you, it would be a small bag. Okay. It's got maybe four or five of the top used Banes, right. Silver buckshot. And they also include enough to produce multiple rounds. See, one of the problems that a lot of people have is that they go and they have these rounds, but they have like one or two of each. 
which is yeah. fine unless you're up against a pack of werewolves or a coven of vampires or, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, a herd of unicorns. <laughs> the pump action shotgun holds about five rounds. You probably got five each. You probably got ten each of each one. So, yeah, you just load up the shotgun, ready, chin chink, boom, and fire away. <laughs> okay. All right, so it sounds like we're trying to move beyond the individual uh, basic loads. So it sounds like what we said yeah. was body armor of some kind, whether it's magical or whatever, some kind of personal handgun, which I uh, happen to believe should be oriented primarily towards stealth, hideability. I mean, a Glock is always good because, one, it's light. Two, it's made of polycarbonate. So there's very little, if any, metal, so it's not going to show up on a lot of metal detectors. And as generally, because of their composition, they're lighter to carry, so you're not going to look like you have the huge weapon. I mean, you're not going to be walking around with a Desert Eagle. I'm sorry, as much as you younger players, oh yeah, the Desert Eagle, or like they say in Epic Mealtime, the bacon of firearms. No, mm -hmm. the Desert Eagle is a rather large firearm. It is rather conspicuous. You're right, going to yeah, want right. something just a wee bit smaller to carry with you. One, you're going to attract attention, and two... You're going to be looking for trouble because whatever bad guy, if it's intelligent and sees you have a big weapon, they're going to go after you first to make sure you don't fire that weapon. Right. So, yeah, Bruce is right. You're going to need a smaller handgun, not necessarily like a little two-shot Derringer, but something that's easy to hide, packs a moderate wallop, yeah. and can get you out of trouble if you, if you get neck high in it. Right. Most handguns in the D20 modern game do 2D6. The quiet ones and the big ones, usually to me it seems like the bigger difference between them is the number of bullets that they carry. You know, if you get like your um, Colt 45, it has like a 15-round clip. Well, okay, you know, a couple of those clips, and yeah, you've got lots of bullets. So you might be going more toward a uh, 9 or, or a 10-round clip at the most. Keep the gun small and concealable. Yeah. And then some combination... Yeah, your choice, okay, between watch and cell phone and computer pad or whatever that does all those functions that those three devices in the Bureau handbook list together. I do want to bring up the one thing I've been doing, and it actually was actually based on an old uh, Bureau adventure, uh, what I call spells on disk. Even though they're no longer on disk, they're on little memory cards. Basically, they're scrolls. You have a little memory card, you plug it into your phone, you run the spell, it does its work, and it burns the chip out. It's a one-shot spell. It's a scroll on disk, on a little memory yeah. chip. You plug it in. So in your game, you hand out magic spells very commonly to agents. They're not the purview of just the mage. What I do is I limit them to a certain number of levels. If there's mage is third level, then I limit them to the little mage who have a spell. So basically, it's extra spells. You know, and I also limit them like three or four. Uh, John, I think what Bruce means is that anybody in the team can use them as opposed to whatever magic user your major, your acolyte. Again, I'll use the D20 modern parlance. If you have just any and everybody on the team able to use that, in order to use these spells on disc or spells on memory card, you're going to need the use magic device skill which I believe the occultist, the mage, and the acolyte in D20 get that as a class feature. You get to use that skill. You get to be able to actually have it as a train, a trainable skill. Yeah, well, ever since I've also been using in on Savage Worlds, which I've been playtesting on uh, various things, uh, I've been using the uh, what they call the no PowerPoint rule, which means you can keep using the spells as long as you want. So actually, the magic user is far more powerful in, in using that rule so giving them a couple of spells on disc doesn't hurt. It sort of even things out between them and, and the spellcaster at that point. You have two considerations here. One is you have role protection, where you're basically watering down the benefit of the mage. And that's okay if, that's, if everyone's okay with that. If, if you're a mage and all of a sudden everybody's got magic spells, then you may not like that. Lose your uniqueness, yeah. Right. If you've got a martial artist, two gun bunnies, and a mage and you're letting the gun bunnies and the martial artists all of a sudden cast spells, the mage does lose his unique status. Right. Yeah, you can do a kick that could, you know, split a door open, and you two could, you know, shoot guns that blow holes in things, but can you shoot a fireball 200 feet? 
Well, if the gun bunny can now shoot a fireball 200 feet, the wizard is just going to go, eh, what am I here for? Actually, what happened was that they gave the spells either to the, to the cleric or, or to the mage. Give them the chips. Let them handle the magic. Okay, yeah. Yeah, if you're just giving them extra usable spell slots, yeah, then you're making the mage more versatile because if he, he's going to use the throwaway spells first to get them out of the way, and he still has all of his inborn spells to use. So, yeah, that's okay. It takes two actions to do it. One action to put the spell in and another action to actually fire off the spell. So if you're a gun bunny and you're taking two actions to pull your phone, actually, an action to pull your phone out, an action to pull the chip out, an action to put it in, an action to run it. You know what? Let the mage catch the spells. I'll just shoot. Yeah, the whole thing, let's see. In D20, you would probably have that. Uh, probably it'd be a full round action then. It would be, yeah. instead of a move and attack action, it'd just be a full round action because you're you're going through the computer functions and then you fire off the spell. So yeah, it'd be a full round. It would take a full six seconds to do all that. Yeah. The other consideration is that when you give this kind of uh, item, you're raising the power level of the situation. Because now everyone's going to have something more that they can do, which means that your threat has to be increased in order to be a challenge for the players. This kind of power creep is common in D20. If anyone's ever gotten the basic books of any version of D&D and then started buying the splat books or the class books, all of a sudden you start getting the same characters, except they're more powerful and they've got better equipment. And they can do things that other classes used to be able to be the only ones they could do. With the Palladium books, it was getting to be an arms race. Each book was more and more powerful than the last, and then they had to put the hammer down and just say, stop it. Right. And so what I'm saying is, is that this isn't a bad idea, John, but I think that as a GM, if I was designing this from a game standpoint, I would give them chips that would be less commonly used. Or things that had a lower, you know, a, a general utility, but not as not a tactical or strategic utility, so that the mage could concentrate his personal power points toward the things that actually would make a bigger difference. That's the usual reason why people have scrolls inside of D and D games, is so they can carry all the spells that they normally don't want to memorize at the beginning of the day because they want to memorize fireballs. My experience, when I let them go through the, the spell lists in Savage Worlds, they typically pick those kinds of spells. Spells that really don't have any combat value, but they're still useful for whatever the uh, the, the mage needs to use. And that, oh, that's the other thing I do I do mention to my mages. Your spell book is the Bureau spell book. There's none of this, I gotta learn a spell. No, bam, here you go. The Bureau spell book. The Bureau has been around since the 1860s and has encountered... How many magic users? How many spellcasters? The Bureau Spellbook has just about everything in it. That's your spellbook. <laughs> it's various cultures. You have shamanistic magic. You have African witch doctor magic. They're going to have a spell for pretty much every type of environment, every type of situation that can you can come across if you just do the research. If you just sit there and say, okay, well, we need a spell for this, you go through your computer and say, oh, well, this culture had something on this. You do your requisition, you say, okay, I need a scroll for this spell. Okay, it's going to take a while, it's back in the back 40 of the, of the magical library. But you can get it. It just takes time and research and ingenuity on the player and through the player, the character's part. Right. And of course, sometimes you don't have that time, so it's always a good idea to try to find a solution that doesn't require requisitioning more equipment. Yeah. Yeah. Now, one thing I do use the spells and discs for is when I look at the mage and I look at the cleric and I realize neither one has the spell they need to actually potentially resolve the issue. So I'll give them the spell or at least the spell and at least two other red herrings on disc so they actually have them. So if they realize, oh, we can use this spell to send the spirit away or we can use this spell to mend the weapon time fabric. They have it, even though they didn't choose it in their regular spell list. <laughs> Moving on to team resources, this is equipment that is used by the team in general. Either shared between characters, handed off between characters, or it's just something that more than one person can use at one time. First thing, I guess, would be vehicles. 
I'm highly in favor of multiple vehicles during any investigation because I assume that most agents are going to, most agent teams are going to have a Colorado RV and all the stuff that comes with that, which is pretty massive amount of equipment there. Well, that's for roaming teams. If you're like, I run a regional team, they have more equipment than the RV, but it's all stationary. So yeah, they have to sort of dole it out as they need to. They can't drive up the RV up to the spot and use it. They have to actually use a panel van or a uh, uh, Humvee or equivalent or, you know, Land Rover or whatever and and use that to get there. But, yeah, it's you know, RVs you can't really park on the street in front of someone's house that easily while getting some the neighbors complaining about taking up a parking spot. Yeah, not only that, yeah. it's also very obvious. Yeah. It's 30, 40 feet long. It's 15 foot high. If you're posing as we're from the FBI, they don't travel in RVs. It just, no. Your credibility kind of goes right out the window. No, you need a pair of Humvees. A pair of black Humvees. Yeah, well, then you're, you know, even then, then you come off as the heavy-handed type. You know, you come off as, like, what do they, you know, they usually come in a sedan. What are they doing coming in, you know, well, black explorers, yeah. black Humvees, you know? Yeah, your earth-tone sedans with a decent engine inside of them and automatic transmission and anti-lock brakes will get you a lot further than most of these other options. Yeah, yeah. I mean, most of the time, you're going to be using your vehicles for surveillance and to get around. You don't want to be drawing attention while you're doing it. I mean, it's nondescript as possible, yes. Exactly. Yeah, I run Team Fremont several times doing various play tests. Team Fremont is the team that's out of Washington. Yeah, I'll see out of Washington, yes. They're, they run their own version of the Weird World News. Yeah, they're a regional team, which means they're basically in place. The characters themselves are all 20-something, so we have this eclectic collection of vehicles. Besides the Humvees and the panel vans, there's also the Love Bug, Volkswagen Beetle, new, new model. It, they had the Beater. It's a beater car. It looks like a beater car. It sounds like a beater car. Inside, it's all bureau, but on the outside, it looks like it's, it's on its last breath. One time, though, we, I yanked it from playtest, though, was the Cosmic Scooter. A scooter that can do 300 miles an hour downtown Seattle was not appropriate. Um, yes. no. <laughs> but nobody will ever catch it. No, no. This was in D20, this during the D20 test, playtest phase. The guy who was driving it burned up all his action points just to survive driving it. <laughs> I highly recommend the Colorado RV because of all that it brings to the table. But it yeah. should be your base. Yeah. It shouldn't be what you use when you're actually out there doing the investigation. Yeah. The way you play your game is going to have a big determination on what kind of special vehicles you can have. Because if you're a roving team... Okay, then you'll have a Colorado RV, and you could have a, a number of Bureau Special Vehicles. But if you're somebody who stays at home, gets a phone call, flies off somewhere, and they drive a uh, standard version of the Bureau v, uh, RV from some local equipment stop over and park it in the, in the airport parking lot for you to get... They may not have extra vehicles for you to their bureau. You may have to rent vehicles. In every adventure I've ever run, unless you literally drove everywhere, even if you had to drive cross country to get to you know to to a mission, you only had the, the Colorado RV, which was a standard loadout, plus the local vehicles that you could rent at an airport. Or someplace close by like that. Yeah, if, if there's a regional team or a supply dump, you might be able to get something from, the, from them to drive around. If you have a regional team, you can have the moon. You could have a moon buggy, for crying out loud. Yeah. You could have, you know, aircraft and everything else because, you know, you have places to keep those things. But, so it's going to depend upon how you're playing the game as to what kind of vehicle should be available to you. Yeah. But I like bureau vehicles because, A... They usually have little extra in them, uh, and by that I mean they have usually some kind of additional protection, and they also have a lot of concealed compartments, so you can take all of your highly illegal investigation equipment and put it someplace where the police, when they stop you, as they always seem to, won't find. 
Oh, this is where the 13th pocket comes in handy again. You open the glove box up. The officer opens up. Looks just fine. You open it up. You can reach inside and pull out pull out the AR-15 you, you stashed in there. You know, or the little uh, box that sits between the driver and the passenger. Cop opens it up. Looks like a normal little uh, box, you know, for putting your, your drinks in or putting in uh, CDs. You open it up and hit a switch, slide back, and they have access to uh, another 13th pocket. You can get stuff from... There's a lot of concealment you can put in, into those things using that using the 13th pocket technology. Yeah, I don't know. I think I may be a little too old school here, John. The whole 13th pocket offends me. It just solves all these equipment problems that used to plague characters maybe it's me as a gm saying i don't want you to have an easier time solving the thing putting these 13th pockets all over your car that many extra dimensional holes in such a small area wouldn't that just like put a rip in the <laughs> a rip in the time space continuum well, just like this guy had 13 13th pockets all throughout his car he yeah, imploded yeah <laughs> you got six team members each with their own 13th pocket you got a vehicle with another 13th pocket you, just you know the continuum have a nice day yeah <laughs> Did you see my suggestion this is just a suggestion and for th those gms out there who, who wanted to use it go ahead use it on the color rv in the back it opens up to the 13th garage where you can park a car and close it up this is what i'm talking about why don't we just have the you know the 13th uh aircraft carrier okay it's like ultraviolet where she had folded space and she had an entire armory all in her wristband. Okay, where do you draw the line? Yeah, so, that ends up becoming PL9 technology there, John. It just, after a while, if we've agreed that the Bureau is PL7, cutting edge is yeah. PL8, having the PL9 technology, that's just, you would have to have one. One of those. And it'd have to be relatively small, like one... Mm -hmm special pocket other than what the bureau gives you and it would be something like ray robertson would look and go there's no way i could replicate this i've checked it out i've written notes it would take me centuries to try to do it yeah sure use it at, at the very least you're field testing it and just that one because if you give it to all the team members and then it's just it's pandora's box or well pandora's 13th pocket let's put it that way yeah if you want to take it to ridiculous levels it looks like a smart car. You open it up, you pull back the seats, and you step into what looks like it's an RV. Okay, we got yeah. a TARDIS now, I think. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. 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 Hello? Hey, hey, Blix. There What's we up? go. The, the GM needs to decide what flavor he wants his campaign to be. I mean, are they going to be tricked out, you know, to the max like an X-Team? Or are they going to be more gritty, kind of relying more on their own resources D depending upon which ones you, you go with then either this 13 pocket idea should be expanded or it should be contracted down to you know maybe just ways of carrying a, a gun someplace where you know it's not going to be detected you know a yeah. small pocket literally a pocket where you can keep a few things that can't be detected by anything that other than somebody who can detect magic it's going to change the tone. And the other thing, too, is, if it is since it is magic that's making these 13 pockets, all someone's got to do is cast a spell magic on it of, of a high enough level, and it's gone. Well, if we're using D20 at all, it will, it's a permanent magic item, which means it'll be disabled for a short period uh, of time. 1D4 rounds. Yeah. You generally don't disenchant things with a single simple dispel magic. Bruce, that 1D4 rounds, if your only gun is in that pocket and somebody casts a spell magic, that's up to 1D4 rounds that they can get the drop on you. So oh, no, it, I'm it, not saying it's not hugely tactical. Oh, yeah. I'm just saying, though, is it's not you're not just getting rid of magic that easily. Right, right. Yeah. Not with your garden hedge. Your, your garden hedge uh, wizards like that. But you're dealing with some of the greater supernatural. That may not be a problem. They go, it's gone. And it's gone. Okay, so we're really talking about is disjunction here, not just a simple yeah. spell magic. Okay. If you're dealing with that kind of power, then yeah, they pretty much write the book on whatever they want. Okay, let's see. What else would a team need that they would have? Oh, I got the thing right off the bat. The document forger. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Oh, man. I mean, if you're going to sit there and bluff your way in saying, yeah, we're from the, the local paper... 
you need to have press credentials to get in the door. And, of course, the Bureau has per state and even per county for some of the bigger states, I think John said this on a previous cast, packets that say, okay, I need identification for somebody, I'll use my neck of the woods, Wayne County. Wayne County, and, and I'll use something from Bruce's book. I need something from Wayne County Child Protective Services. Fine. You have all the credentials in this particular kit where you can print out ID, forms, all that stuff that you would need to pull off being that. And I would think, well, because in Bureau 13D20, the Bureau Agent class, there is Create Background. Right. It is a class feature, which I believe gives you a plus to your forgery skill. I think a plus two. Yeah. What it mostly does is it creates a, a difficulty level for someone using forgery to detect that your identity is not good. The counter skill for that is spot. Well, I think it's also forgery as well. If you're going to be yeah. going in as somebody else, mm -hmm. you need to have something to give you the proper credentials from FBI to FEMA yeah. to local law enforcement, journalism. But of course, with, the, with these things, they're not forgeries. They're real documents. They're real credentials because... They just get them off the pack. They go to government stores and get them somehow. And you've got real government ID. It's not Forge. You don't think Forge is the, is, the, is the actual identity on there. Well, John, you can't have an infinite amount of... No, you can't. Well, okay, wait a second. With the 13th pocket, you can't have an infinite amount of... <laughs> <laughs> no, what I'm saying, though, is that you, you, you can have the packets. You have the, the packet, Like you said, you have one for Child Protective Services. So you have all the necessary uh, papers and, you know... Driver's license, everything, you know, you know, you have your standard, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be oh. someone else, I'll have a driver's license for that state, I'll have a weapons permit for that state, I'll have a federal weapons permit for that automatic weapon I got, you know, and, and blah, blah, blah. Now that federal we weapons permit may be a real one. It was issued to that fictitious person, and you've, you know, you never know how, how, how uh, it's however you, you develop your background, how much time you have to develop your background. Whether that you can get a real weapons permit versus a fake weapons permit. Well, assuming that you don't have that all set up, it just makes sense to me that the document forger would have a folder that you click on it and take your identity, drop it on the folder, it prints out perfect documents and letterheads and ID badges and everything else that's necessary for you to be able to flawlessly impersonate someone who would have that identity as far as equipment is concerned. Or you use one of the Bureau's few handmade, you know, one-use-only IDs they've been nurturing for the past 20, 40, 30 years so that you actually can pick up and use it and then throw it away. There's only so many nurtured IDs. These are, these are special IDs that you all can use once, maybe for a couple days, and once you're done, but they're perfect. They'll survive a week-long background check before they finally find something that's not right. And that's an important point. The document forger, unless we've changed its description, does not automatically insert your identity into the various computer databases. That requires a separate hacking check. Yes. It's also the intercepts are a lot harder these days as well, because back in the day, intercepts could be done you know, by tapping into the phone line. These days, you got to tap into computer computer networks, a voice over IP like we're doing right now. Uh, you got to tap into cell phone networks. You got to tap into still landlines at that point to be able to do an intercept. It's not as easy as it was in the old days. It's actually a bit more difficult these days to intercept a, uh, a request. The Bureau has a, a line into government computers because it goes to them so many times. But when it comes to things like AT&T, T-Mobile, ah, that's a different thing altogether. That's going to be actually be more difficult because these folks really guard their privacy and their technology. The harder the hack than government computers in some cases. I think you're being a little bit too realistic about this, John. Bureau 13 isn't a hard, gritty game like that anymore. <laughs> and we have shows like Leverage, which show people doing this flawlessly, effortlessly. I think the audience expectation is, is that you're not going to have that much trouble doing this sort of thing if you have the kind of hardware and back-end support that the Bureau should be able to bring to you. 
throughout the entire history of Bureau 13 and all its previous incarnations, there has been this kind of, okay, we're such a super secret organization, even the agents can't contact us. You want to contact the Bureau, you go and leave a little message on a bulletin board. Or you call a phone that has an answering machine that calls another phone or something like that. I think that's really antiquated under today's technology. I think that the Bureau should be responding relatively quickly now. You can have one million bit encryption on your messages. So there shouldn't really be any kind of a problem about wherever Bureau Central is, which has got to be distributed anyways, being able to contact you and send you information that you need when you request it without you having to wait five or six hours to get a simple yes-no answer back. Oh, yeah, the kicker in that is that the Bureau would probably, as I said, PL7 technology, they'd probably have their own phone network. All of their stuff is hooked up to each other and then can also access normal phones, normal cell phones, normal landlines, their own bureau phone company, for lack of a better term. Yeah, voice over IP, basically. And, and, and also that's going to hook into, let's say you get something transmitted to you. There is going to be stuff that they'll be able to just tap into that and boom, you your response time will be a lot quicker now for getting stuff. So even the chart in the D20 book may be out of date by now. That's one of my points, yes. If you're this well-connected, there's the converse. It means bureau managers can now micromanage teams much more these days, too, then. If the bureau agents can make easy contact with the, with the bureau, the bureau can make easy contact with the agents. Well, yeah, I mean, they're going to want to find out what's going on, keeping up, and you're going to have to file reports anyways. You're going to have to say, okay, this is the amount of time that we used on this. This is what we, the equipment we expended, you know, amount of ammo that we went through, uh, what we did in order to stop the situation that you sent us on. Agents are going to have to file reports, so that communication network is going to have to be two-way. For you know, you're driving down a road in the middle of the night and a ghost walks in front of you. Hey, we got a mission. What other team equipment would there be? We've said vehicles of various types. Yeah. The document yeah. forger and all that it can do. Let's see, what else? Surveillance um, equipment. Oh, yes, the surveillance drones and so forth, which we uh, we actually detailed uh, in the uh, D20 book into to great detail. In fact. And that was very good, though. Probably, as you said, there probably, probably some of it needs to be even better. I was running the Stalking the Steel City Pittsburgh Ripper episode, and somebody tried to launch one of the drones. Because they have the running ability where you could run four times as fast, as long as you're willing to take minuses to be hit and stuff like that, people were able to run faster than the drones could fly. And one guy was sitting back in the RV thinking that he could just send a drone over and attack somebody with it, and he wasn't able to get into the combat at all because of that. So I think we need to relook at that because it seems like you should be able to fire off a drone and move it around a little faster than somebody can run. A drone, the one we actually on picture of page 54. I'm talking about like one of the hover drones. Oh, hover drones. Well, hover drones are not going to move very fast. In fact, you know what? I was just at Brookstone a couple weeks ago, and they had a four-prop uh, remote-controlled drone, basically, you could buy for $400. It controlled with your smartphone and have camera feedback so you can see where it's going. These various kinds of surveillance devices, they should all feed together into a, ma a massive surveillance network that could be accessed by any team member using their computer pad or whatever at all times. So everybody should be able to have access to this. I've always assumed that the team has, when they're busy working, they've been switched to continuous mode at that point. What you hear, they hear, everyone else can hear if they want to. What you, when you talk, they hear what you say when you're talking. So you're always in con continuous communication with each other. Well, there's good and bad things about that, because if you have two people who are engaging in conversations at the same time with different people, that can be very confusing. But it, that's usually hand-waved away in the game anyways, but yeah. I assume that everybody's in constant contact with each other, uh, and that's one of the functions of the cell phone was, okay, if they're out of range, it automatically is going to call their cell phone. We're still going to be able to maintain communication over any distance where connectivity exists. This also allows you to have redundancy between devices. You can have one camera 
this looking at the same area in, in infrared while another one's using starlight while another one's using some other kind of uh, thermographic. Carillion. And that way you can actually get multiple shots of the same location, which can help you also build a 3D model. And with the multiple types of vision, you can collate all your information and say, okay, heat sources are here. These are the areas where magic radiates from. That means he has items here, here, and here. Spectrographic is here. In the Colorado's windshield, you can all integrate that into one image. They have that type of heads-up display there. That's what the advantage of having all that is. You can even use it to figure out stuff about a building and other things like that, about actually doing on-the-fly analysis of building structures, looking for secret rooms and other things like that. So it's important to have all these different devices available into one communication network. I think that's underutilized. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. license 3.0. No commercial distribution or derivatives are allowed. The TriTech Podcast is wholly owned by TriTech Games. Visit us at www.tritechgamers.com or on Facebook. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.